Hey, this is Travis Bennett, the pastor here at Arena of Life Church, and I just want to welcome you to our podcast. I pray this builds your faith, encourages you, and brings you to newer levels in Christ. Enjoy the message. Amen. Well, if uh, you were here two weeks ago, not last last week, we had First Wednesday and had a full-blown service, taught on the fear of the Lord. And uh, the week before that, I was kind of an opener of talking about this life of Paul. Let me see a show of hands. How many of y'all have been blessed by the ministry of Saul of Tarsus? Uh, lots of people. Amen. And so um, last week, just real quick, I'm going to give you uh, a glimpse of that. He said, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew, the Hebrews, is touching the law, a Pharisee. And so if you were here, uh, he was probably, Rick Renner writes in his books uh, about the life of Paul. He said this, he probably, when he was being raised, he was told as a boy to say this, I thank God that I am a Hebrew and God didn't make me a Gentile. I thank God that I'm a Hebrew and God didn't make me a Gentile. And so uh, the family probably that he was raised in, and you can see that he was circumcised on the eighth day. I mean, he was, as he says, a Hebrew to the Hebrews, touching the law of Pharisee. Uh, now, this week, we're going to see where we first meet him. All right? You guys ready? I'm going to teach a little bit, read a little bit, and uh, kind of go back to my old wicked ways. I've told you guys this before. I'm more of a preacher, and so I have to really work on my teaching gift. And so uh, this kind of helps me stay honed in. If you've been saved for any amount of time, you've probably naturally adopted the Christianized mental, Im- Christianized mental image of the Apostle Paul. After all, he's the one who gave us both letters to the Corinthians. He wrote Romans. He penned the liberating letter to the Galatians, exhorting them and us to live in freedom. Have y'all, uh, those of you that have been on in the mornings, have y'all got anything out of the book of Ephesians? Hadn't it been good? Love the book of Ephesians. Um, uh, He penned the liberating letter to the Galatians, exhorting them and us to live in freedom. God's grace provides. And the uh, prison epistles and the pastoral letter are so, so full of wisdom and relevance. Based on all that, you would think the man loved the Savior from birth. But how many of y'all know that's not even close? He hated the name of Jesus so much he became a self-avowed, violent aggressor, persecuting and killing Christians in allegiance to the God of heaven. Shocking. You must never forget the pit from what, what you came. The better we understand the darkness of his past, the more we will understand why he wrote about grace. The first portrait of Paul's life, painted in sculpture, is not of a little baby being lovingly cradled in his mother's arms, nor does it describe a Jewish boy leaping and bounding with neighborhood friends through the streets of Tarsus. The original portrait is not even of a brilliant young law student sitting faithfully at the feet of Gamaliel. If that's all we think about Paul, it would mislead us into thinking he enjoyed a storybook past. Instead, we first meet him as simply a young man named Saul, party to Stephen, brutal murder. Um, brutal murderer standing in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Acts chapter 7 and verses 58, it says, And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. This is Stephen. And the witness laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man 
named Saul. Now Saul was consenting to his death. This is Acts chapter 8 verse 1. At that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. I want to do a little more history tonight before we jump into where we first see him. Uh, Talk about his birth. Jesus was six when Paul is born, or Saul is born, 960 miles north of where Saul was. Um, Saul was he was born in Tarsus to the tribe of Benjamin and he was named after King Saul of Gibeah now I told you guys this last week he was the first king that was in Israel if you read first uh, Samuel uh, the Israelites are begging for a king they go before the prophet Samuel and they said give us a king now I found this ironic about I was thinking about this uh, this is a fun fact Saul went from being a godly man to a murderous traitor. But look at the life of Saul. He went from a murderous traitor to being a godly man. Isn't that pretty unique there? Uh, Tarsus, which is modern-day Turkey, was conquered by Rome 70 years before Saul was born. So history tells us that Saul's grandparents uh, owned land before Rome conquered it. And if you owned land on Roman territory, you were granted Roman citizenship. But you could keep your cultural ties like he did to the Hebrews uh, with repercussions. So I want you to think about this. If you've ever done a study on the Romans, they were brutal, brutal people. I mean, they were brutal. So he lived and breathed and talked and traded amongst Romans. But at home, which were Gentile people, right? But at home, he was a Jew and he learned the cultural Jews. This made him double impactful bad dude with an attitude, extremely rude. You get what I'm talking about? So Tarsus was the capital city of Sicilia, located a dozen miles or so from the glistening beaches of the Mediterranean. Tarsus sits cradled by the towering Taurus Range, a line of rugged mountains running from the seacoast toward the north, providing a sweeping protective shield around the city. Because the city was near a seaport, Tarsus became a popular trade route for caravans carrying their goods from the Orient in the east all the way to Rome in the west. The journey required their passing through the Sicilian gates, an impressive span of narrow passages through the Taurus mountain above Tarsus. It was a hub of trade, wealth, and knowledge. It was a busy metropolis of diverse cultures and international commerce. Its strategic location explains its significance and its success. It had one of the greatest universities in the world. The only one that rivaled it was one that was in Athens. So Saul was a Roman, but he was raised Jewish. His father was a tent maker and a Pharisee. He lost his mother at the age of nine, and his his father taught his son to build tents all the way up until the age of 14. But at the age of 14, everything changed. I'm going to read to you some commentary from John Pollock from the author of the Apostle, uh, A Life of Paul. It says, Paul's parents were Pharisees, members of the party, most fervent in Jewish nationalism, and strict in obedience to the law of Moses. They sought to guard their offspring against contamination, 
friendship with Gentile children were discouraged. Greek ideas were despised. Though Paul from infancy could speak Greek and had a working knowledge of Latin, his family at home spoke Aramaic, the language of Judea, a derivative of Hebrew. They looked to Jerusalem as Islam looks to Mecca. Their privileges as freemen of Tarsus and Roman citizens were nothing to the high honor of being Israelites, the people of promise to whom alone the living God and had revealed his glory and his plans. By his 13th birthday, Paul had mastered Jewish history, the poetry of the Psalms, and the majestic literature of the prophets. His ear had been trained to the very pitch of accuracy, and a swift brain like his could retain what he heard as instantly and faithfully as a modern photographic mind retains a printed page. He was ready for higher education. So at the age of 14... This would be about A.D. 20. His father pushed him to study under Gamaliel. We're going to study him a little bit more here tonight. But not just anyone would study under him. He was one of the top-ranking Pharisees of his day. He studied with him for eight years, history tells us. And then he goes back to his hometown in Tarsus where he gets uh, hooked up in one of his local synagogues there with somebody else where, he, where he's still receiving training. But Paul continues writing in his book, he said, A strict Pharisee would not embroil his son in pagan moral philosophy. So probably in the, the, in the year that Augustus died in A.D. 14, the adolescent Paul was sent by sea to Palestine and climbed the hills to Jerusalem. During the next five or six years, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, grandson of Hillel, the supreme teacher who, a few years before, had died at the age of more than 100. Under the fragile, gentle Gamaliel, a contrast with the leaders of the rival school of Shema, Paul learned to dissect a text until scores of possible meanings were disclosed according to the, according to the considered opinion of generations of rabbis. Paul learned to debate in question and answer style known in the ancient world as the diatribe, and to expound, for a rabbi was not only part preacher, but part lawyer, who prosecuted or defended those who broke the sacred law. Paul outstripped his contemporaries. He had a powerful mind which could lead us to a seat, which could lead him to a seat on the Sanhedrin in the hall of polished stones and make him a ruler of the Jews. So now here we are. He's born in 6 A.D., 20 A.D. Uh, he, he goes... Uh, to Gamaliel, after eight years, he comes home. Now here we are in A.D. 34, 34 A.D., sorry. He was elected by Gamaliel to sit on the Sanhedrin Council. So when he returns to Jerusalem, it's not what it was before. When he returns, I look at the, the history here, just three years before that, this is really when the ministry of Jesus is cooking up. So when he returns to Jerusalem, it's not what it was before. When he returns, he learns of them following a man from Nazareth. He claimed to be God himself, fulfilling the prophecies that Saul knew so well. So he saw these people as blasphemous. So he begins to push back, seek out any of his followers. These were common people, fishermen with no education, that were questioning Saul and the whole Sanhedrins, all 71 of them, 
their authority. Acts chapter 5. Here we go. Since the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, Jerusalem had been astir with religious activity. The more the apostles, Peter and John, and more of them, etc., preached the good news of Jesus, the more the people were converted. Everything was changing, even long-standing traditions. Jews living in Jerusalem and others visiting around from the region were embracing Christ by the thousands. Bound religious leaders were outraged by what they were witnessing. Enough was enough to them. As a result, they started imprisoning them. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 5, verse 18, and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in common prison. So these spirit-filled apostles were given the religious establishments like the Sanhedrin fits. Let's look at this from the perspective of a citizen from Jerusalem. Their attempt to silence the followers of Jesus by crucifying their master had backfired. So, incarcerating the religious fanatics, like these apostles here, seemed the best strategy to prevent further conversion of Jews. You would think that worked, but not even that worked. To make it worse for the religious officials, something miraculous happened. An angel in the night opened the gates of the prison and told them to go on your way. Acts chapter 5 and verse 19, let's look at it. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple, speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. This is a huge backfire. The religious leaders thought they had dealt with the rebels when in fact they had only motivated them to return to their preaching bolder than ever. Some similar, how many of y'all know if you got broke out of prison, you'd be just as bold. Throw me in prison again, I'm going to break out. Oh, break out. Yes, you're going to break out. Uh, similar to what had happened following the scene of uh, Golgotha, the Jew Jewish leaders felt certain that crucifying Jesus would end it all. They couldn't have been more wrong. Christianity began to flourish following his resurrection. And it still is today. Amen. You guys can read. Now because of Acts chapter 2, they are full of the Spirit. The apostles uh, were, were setting... Uh, Jerusalem on fire through their preaching. Their zeal was contagious. Their message convincing. So it wasn't long before these same religious leaders found themselves a shrinking minority that prompted them to call an emergency meeting to plan their next move. We see, read right here, Acts chapter 5, verse 21 through 23. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Hallelujah. The angel of the Lord had unlocked the prison, setting the apostles free, and then locked the place up again. I love that. Don't you? I love it. When they came to the jail, they found the guards asleep, the gates secured, and no prisoners. 
Scripture doesn't say it exactly, but Saul was probably numbered among the group who heard the troubling uh, report. Uh, Why did I put to them? Oh, it's troubling to them. All right. This would have been the whole Sanhedrin, including those accompanying them, like junior lawyers, advisors, and their servants. Saul was right in the middle. Growing frustration grew throughout the ranks and religious officials. Acts chapter 5 verse 24 explains, Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So basically he was saying, what do you mean you didn't find these people? These officials are out of their minds trying to figure out what had happened. Then another messenger comes in with more exciting news. Acts chapter 5 and verse 25. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. Do you see it? These leaders now feared for their lives as they sensed the tide turning against them. More and more people by the thousands now probably were saying, don't touch these men. They're telling things we have never heard. Their eyes were being opened to the gospel. This is why they feared the people. So when they brought them in, they stood them before the council. The Bible goes on to say, Acts 5, 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. So they begin to blame someone else, probably the Romans, on the crucifixion of what they think is the false Messiah. They tell them, you're making us look bad, but I love how Peter responds. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Can I tell you, Peter's still right today. I wish people would have read this in 2020. We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him, God, has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, and also is the Holy Spirit. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. You know Saul heard this speech. While standing in the background listening to Peter speak, his, his ears turned red. This young Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews, listened madly as the ignorant fisherman named Peter speak on the now dead Jesus who claimed to be God. It was almost more than he could take. Passion boiled within him as Saul began formulating plans, thinking, when I get my hands on him, he's a dead man. But little did he know, God had another plan, like he always does. The ignorant fisherman he was listening to would later become a co-laborer in the work of establishment, uh, establishing Christian churches throughout the known world. Now, is it only God can do that kind of thing. Only God can can turn something like that around. Before Saul could organize an assault on this man and his companions, God intervened in another surprising turn of events 
that made Saul's mentor Gamaliel stand to his feet. I think, you know, even talking about as far as we've gone right here, I think about Romans 1.16. What does Paul say? He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. You know, it had to be these moments of boldness that he was seeing at the time. He wasn't in the right mind frame. But isn't it amazing how God will remind you of something even back in your past that made you who you are today? And it was in those moments like that that he penned that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I am not ashamed. I don't care who's around me. I don't care where I am. I don't care what I'm doing. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Amen? Come on. So, there's a turn of events that's about to take place, and his mentor, Gamaliel, is going to make him stand to his feet. The Bible says in Acts chapter 5 and verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. So you know if Gamaliel's there, Saul's there. Gamaliel, remember the one who Saul went to learn under when he was 14? Saul begins to watch his mentor like a father figure in action, the one he learned everything from. This was a great moment for Saul. He was waiting for him to give it to Peter, but it was quite the contrary. The Bible tells us in 535, and he said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves that you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theodos, or Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For it, if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. He sounds pretty wise here, doesn't he? William Barclay, in a commentary, writes that at this moment, Gamaliel looked like an unexpected ally. You know he had to in the eyes of Paul. Right in the middle of a bad temper and irrational thinking, the wise, seasoned teacher rose to his feet and warned, take care here, don't rush to judgment. Look at what he says in verse 38, 39. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you can't overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Don't you know Saul was in awe? This man was supposed to be a voice of Judaism. He taught me everything about the law. He schooled me in how to do precisely what I'm doing. Saul was thinking he had lost his ever-living mind. Think about this, though. Saul had no way of knowing then that it would be this same calm reasoning that would hold him together when he later carried the gospel all over the world. What did Paul say? He said, I have learned to be content in all things. He would remind himself that those who find fight against him were really fighting God. But at this moment, he did not have this revelation. He was thirsty for blood. Remember, this guy is a Roman raised by Romans in a Hebrew home. 
Why are they going soft on this infidel? But that's what they did. Thank God for Gamaliel that day. Peter's life and the rest of the apostles were saved. What we will soon find out about Saul, he would have, he would have stoned him. But God. He used the words of a wise professor to preserve the lives of those who would later play strategic roles in the formation of the Christian church. Keep that in mind next time you feel hopeless. No matter what you're facing, God is still in control, working all things out to his perfect plan. Acts chapter 5 and verse 40. And they agreed with him, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they, they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They beat them to deliver a warning to everyone, and they meant business. Now, I want you to think about this. The King James actually says that they flogged them. You know what a flogging is. They were tied to a post. Uh, it's the same flogging that, that Jesus would have had, the cat of nine tails. Maybe not in the same sense, but my point is this. Their backs would have been ripped completely open. I mean, this would be like. What was it a couple years ago? Uh, the guy in Singapore got caned. He would knock him out. I mean, it would be basically the same type of thing. Um, so this wasn't just, you know, they roughed them up a little bit. They beat them because they're trying to deliver a warning to everybody that they mean business about this. But it goes on in Acts chapter 5, verse 41. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. I want to ask you tonight, if you were to get flogged tomorrow, would you preach the gospel the very next day? I hope so. I would like to think that I would. This is where our respect for these men intensifies. Don't you love their response? Truly outstanding courage. Don't you see the courage on these guys? Their backs were still bloody. And they were back at it, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love it. Romans 1.16, I put it in here. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. While we, while we respect them, Saul hated them for it. He even admitted it when he went before the king of Agrippa. Look what he says to the king of Agrippa. You know the story here. Uh, this is the third time you hear his testimony, or we, you hear the conversion in nine of what happened in his life in, in two other times in the book of Acts, but this is the last time. Acts 26 and verse 10. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly en enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Listen to what he was admitting to. He had became a passionate, determined Pharisee, a man on a mission. Letters he wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy, contained a similar confession. He wrote to him, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. 
Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. How many of y'all just thankful for the saving power of Jesus Christ, the grace of God? You know, I, I just think of when I was when I was studying for this and uh, just so many things that were going going through it, just like when he was before the king of Agrippa. And thinking about this moment of where Gamaliel saves saves the life of of Peter and the other apostles that are standing before him. I think about the text of when he's standing before Agrippa and he says this, I think myself happy. Right. That's the safe. That's the, that's the grace of God. That's the mercy of God that really, not only did he have a name change, he had a heart that was made of stone, and God turned it into a heart of flesh. What only God can do. Now we get to Acts chapter 6. The first portrait of Paul is brutal and bloody. If you were to paint a picture of this, you would, want, you would not want to put a picture of it up in your living room. This smart leader of the Sanhedrin looks more like a terrorist than a man who is a follower of Judaism. The first victim the Bible tells us about is a man named Stephen, a Christian living in Jerusalem. The Bible describes this man as full of grace and power. He spoke with spirit, anointed wisdom, and his countenance shone like the face of an angel. But still, they stoned him and murdered him in cold blood. Acts chapter 6 and verse 8, 10 and 15, it says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Verse 15. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. The Sanhedrin, called the council in the book of Acts, despised Stephen because of the strong stand he took for Christ. They refused to sit any longer listening to his passionate description of the one he called the Messiah. So in a rage... They drove him into the streets, through the northern gate, to the outskirts of the city. There they threw large, jagged stones until he fell flat and died. Saul, observing the entire episode, stood among the mob, holding Stephen's robe. No doubt, he was happy and delighted. Look at what Acts chapter 7 in the message says. It says, yelling and hissing, the mob drove... I'm not really a message guy, but I love the way he put it. The mob drove, drowned him out. Now in full stampede, they dragged him out of town and pelted him with rocks. The ringleaders took off their coats and asked a young man named Saul to watch them. As the rocks rained down, Stephen prayed, Master Jesus, take my life. Then he knelt down, praying loud enough for everyone to hear, Master, don't blame this, blame them for this, his last words. Then he died. Here's a conclusion. Saul, this is the same man that would write about God's grace and mercy. He is one of the 99 who would, who would live to see. He is one of the 99. I'm, I'm talking about sheep here. Leave the one, to, leave the 99 to go after the one. Who would live to see the day when Peter's words would stick in his throat and become and become for him the motivating force behind his commitment to Christ. You cannot fight against God, he would preach to his opponents. But until the grace of Christ laid hold of him, 
he violently opposed everyone and everything related to Jesus. What's crazy? He did this in the name of God. I mean, y'all know, I mean, still terrorism that's going on in the world today, they do it in the name of their God. That's why there's nothing more scary. In fact, the man, uh, the man who killed John Lennon, I forget what his name is, but he drove all through the night from Fort Worth, Texas, drove all through the night to uh, New York. When he got to New York, the reason that he was after John Lennon's life is because he really felt by the Spirit of God, this is his words, by the Spirit of God that he needed to die because John Lennon said that he was more popular than Jesus Christ. And also, too, he was pushing communism, communism to socialism at the time. But he drove all through the night. He got to the hotel where Yoko Ono and uh, John Lennon was staying. And he had a Beatles album that he got signed. He got this Beatles album, like a record, signed by John Lennon. John Lennon left and did what he, whatever he was going to do. And when he came back to the hotel, he saw him in the street, went up to him point blank, and I... Uh, John Lennon recognized the man, went out to say something to him, and he took a 38 special to his chest six times. Stayed right there. Police came to him. He said, I did this in the name of God. To rid the world, America should be thankful for me. Isn't it amazing what people so-called do? Aren't you thankful for the living word that instructs us and teaches us in the way that we should go? <clears throat> That's why there's nothing more scary, more vicious than a religious terrorist. What they do, they justify in the name of God. Saul was no exception to the rule. The man that said, blameless according to the law, by his own testimony, blindly believed his bloody deeds, honored the Lord by ridding the earth of these Christians. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, it says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. My whole point of this one tonight, I guess I should have put a little more in there. I really don't ever know how much to put in. But this takes a lot of work for what I did right here. Uh, uh, my, my whole point is this. I really hope you see when we get into the conversion of when, when Christ comes in in into to Saul's life, he, he, he goes, he creates a name change in him. Now, I realize this is his Greek name, going, now going by Paul. But any man in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become brand new. Aren't you, aren't, don't you know that Paul or Saul had to be eat up with shame, guilt, condemnation? All of those things. But you read all of his letters. He deals with shame, guilt, and condemnation. For the reader for us to, be, to walk in freedom. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Amen. Aren't you thankful that Jesus doesn't hang a pass over you? Aren't you thankful that the, the things, the, the ludicrous things. I, now I see why. Uh, you know, with such a grateful heart. In, in the book of Corinthians, he was uh, shipwrecked and had his hair pulled out, been stoned. I mean, not Colorado kind, but like actually rocks thrown at him. 
actually, you can't even say Colorado County anymore. Nearly every state in the union is uh, it's legal anymore. But my whole point is this, is, is that this man of, of the wicked past that he came out of, man, what, what a testimony of God's grace, God's mercy. And he said, he said that, I've learned to be content in all things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He talked about love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not envious, not boastful. I love the book of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, that he would grant unto me by his rich treasure and glory, strengthen me, reinforce me with might to my inner man, his Holy Spirit himself, my inmost being and personality. Marriage couples, the wisdom that he gives in, in Ephesians chapter 5, all of it, I'm telling you, thank God uh, that this man who was born 961 miles north of where Jesus' ministry was could be impacted so much and change the course of the world. Isn't that awesome? All right. Well, I guess I should have had more. You're getting out early tonight. Is that all right? All right. Well, God, I thank you for this time together. God, I just thank you, Lord, for, um, gosh, what the word means to each and every one of us. We thank you, God, for your word. We're so thankful for the word. And I, I pray, Lord, that it would be a lamp unto our feet, that it would be a light unto our path. God, I just thank you, God, right now. I pray for each and every person in here. May we experience everything that you are, God, this week as we leave from here. Thank you that the Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. Lord, I speak your provision over your people today. I thank you that you supply all of our needs according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. I will say to the Lord that you're our refuge. God, you're our fortress. It's in you that we put our trust. Lord, we, we do, as Peter said, we don't put our trust in men. We put our trust in God. We trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding. In all our ways, God, acknowledge you and you will direct our path. God, I pray that this week in decisions that are made, we'd hear the word of the Lord behind us that says, this is the way, walk in it, whether it be to the left or be to the right. I pray, God, um, we hear your voice, the voice of a stranger. We will and shall not follow. Holy Spirit, direct us, guide us. Lord, I pray for healing in the room right now. Lord, those that need healing in their body, thank you that you're Jehovah Rapha, you're the God who heals. You sent your word and you healed us and delivered us from all destruction. Lord, your word says the chastisement of your peace was upon us and that by your stripes we are healed. So I come against virus, infection, disease of any kind. I pray that bones, tendons, ligaments, God, they line up to your word. And I pray for wholeness to be done in people's bodies in Jesus' name. Lord, I thank you for it. We give you glory for it now in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks for joining us. We want to thank all of you who give to our ministries here at AOL Church. It's because of you that all of this is possible. You can give now by clicking the link below. And if you haven't already, subscribe and share this message. It helps us reach more people and share the gospel through you. Be sure to stay connected to us through our Church Center app, our website, arenaoflifechurch.org, and follow us on social media like Facebook and Instagram. May the Lord bless you and keep you. His face shine upon you, be gracious to you, and give you peace. Thanks again for listening. Go and make a difference today.